This is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. And we're recording today in beautiful Belgrade Lakes, Maine. And it's a gray day, but at least it stopped raining. It was raining when I left South Portland. The never-ending construction on Main Street. And the never-ending rain. Is going on, but I don't think it will be as disruptive as the The jackhammer across the street from your house last time. People may have noticed that in the second half of (laughs) the last one, there were issues. Because we had to move from your living room, where things were going great, into the bedroom, and then things just went down. <laughs> Gross. I think I did something when the cat knocked the laptop yes. over. The cats always want to be part of the podcast. And it, well, we are trying. We appreciate people's patience. And, and the bottom line is, if you really hate listening to it, then don't. No one's forcing you. That's right. That's a real good way to get new listeners. <laughs> We're not hey, I wanted people. to tell you before we uh, do any updates. When I had Hannah's parent-teacher conference a little while ago, they have now these conferences. The kid is there with you. What good is that? I think sometimes they have them without the kid, but um, this one, she was there. And and my daughter is in second grade. So the teacher was saying that she was a good writer. And she said, well, that's because, and Hannah said to the teacher, well, that's because of my mother. This teacher is, is was one of her several substitutes she's had this year. She's probably in her, she was retired and came out of retirement to be a substitute. So Hannah said, yeah, I, that's because of my mom. The teacher's like, oh, really? And um, Hannah's like, yeah, my mom has a podcast. <laughs> and the teacher goes, <laughs> she, she literally scoffed. She's like, <laughs> A podcast. Well, unless it's a podcast about writing, I don't see how see how that would be helpful. What a bitch! And I said, well, her aunt's a writer, and she actually has a podcast about writing. And well, she, I used to. Well, you, it's still there. No, it's not because I had to get oh. rid of the website because I couldn't pay for the oh, website. Oh, that's so sad. So I don't think it's there anymore. I'm sorry, but anyways, I said, well, still, and she's like, oh, okay. But I was and like, also, fuck you, lady. Well, you could have said. I have to write scripts for it. I have to create a story. And also, I'm a creative artistic I didn't, person. I'm not going to get in an argument with some yeah. fucking teacher. I'm sure you're... In front well, of my I, daughter. I won't, I won't speculate on what your daughter's father may have thought of all that. Um, he doesn't... He, yeah, if he listens to this, he... Uh, he, I'm he, sure he, he may because he's. I don't think he can stand the sound of our voices. So. That's true. <laughs> but I don't think it he takes could. a special person. I also want to. Well, I have an update, but before that, I want to say we want to once again thank our Patreon supporters. We have two new ones, Anne Marie and Aaron. Thank you. you. Thank. The reason, if you haven't gotten your merch yet, Patreon supporters, is because we had to order some more of our special crime and stuff tote bags, and the place we order them from no longer makes the style that we got with the zipper, which we really liked. So we had to order a different kind. They're still good. We still get them. And also, any Patreon supporters listening are must be thrilled to death because finally, we our newsletter has come out. Ooh. And if you're a Patreon supporter, that's the only way you can get that newsletter. <laughs> oh. <And your> email. <laughs> and what we put in it, and it's always evolving, like we put in a little bit of exclusive. We pick one of our episodes, our recent episodes, and put some links that aren't available on our website yet. <laughs> the last one we put in some stuff about the Helen Bailey case. I put in a link to the video, which obviously anyone can find, but um, this is helpful. It makes it to easier. The, to the show What the Killer Did Next, 
with Philip Glenister. <laughs> and also, the which intrigued me, and I forgot to mention it during the podcast, the missing poster for Boris the dog. Oh, Because doggy. she had, there were a couple missing posters. There was a standard one. There was one that made a big deal about her being an Arsenal fan, which I also put on there, which I thought was funny because it just said, like, in big red letters at the top, like, Arsenal fan. Hmm. And then it mentioned again that she was at maybe people's, oh, yeah, I saw her at the oh, yeah. match. Okay, and now I know. Or, well, I'm glad she's an Arsenal fan. Now I'll look for her. And then also kind of what we have coming up, although I didn't know what you were doing today. So. Good. Uh, but in any case, that's if you want to support us on Patreon for as little as $2 a month. That's one of the things you get. Everybody well, gets a token. I know, you know, I feel bad because I know other podcasts have extra content and stuff, but maybe someday we'll... We're having trouble getting our... Not our we're trying, but it is a lot of... I mean, people don't realize how much work it is, and I and I think the people that do it are great. Yes. Um, and also the editing is the preparing our scripts is but work we both you've got just, two jobs and i've got two we're jobs not just cutting and pasting from wikipedia not only do i have two jobs but i don't even count which i should my writing is a job yes which i definitely try to do and then i'm on some town board which is your own fault I, I know if i did what i wanted to do in life it wouldn't be what I'm doing now to make money. But you have to make money to pay what? your bills. You don't like giving blowjobs? <laughs> I do that. I do that out of, just, just for fun. Jobs. Oh. <laughs> it's less money, but, you know. I don't make money at it. Oh, you oh, mean you, you can make money? Free. You can get paid for that? Oh, my but God. What would you do if you could if you could do anything you wanted for money? I just Not for money. If I could do anything if, I wanted and money wasn't a concern. If you could do anything you wanted and still have a, the roof you desired I would just be, over be your in, I would just do my art, and uh, my po- we, I have fun doing the podcast. Yeah, I do more. Po- I me do. Too. We could do more on the podcast. And it's funny that you said that because right before you started saying it, I was going to say my dream life would be giving to, hand I, jobs. No, oh, okay, no, sorry. no. I just do that for money. <laughs> and I don't really, I know some people take things too seriously. Oh, by the way, people, this is a, this podcast isn't suitable <laughs> for children. <laughs> I know we have a cartoony logo <laughs> designed by artist Rebecca Milliken. Okay. I would, I was just thinking about that, that I, you know, I don't need a big fancy house. I would like a house like where the sink upstairs worked and I could afford <laughs> yeah. an exterminator and things like I'd that. I'd just like a house, my own house. I would write. I would like to make enough money for my writing that I wouldn't have to do other jobs. And I would be on those town boards because I think it's important to give back. Because, you know, I'm a giving kind of person. (laughs) I'm just joking. No, but I would be on the town boards because I enjoy that. I would probably still do the free things like the press release for my friend. Um, Occasionally, no more editing people's books for free. That's gone by the wayside. And I would still definitely do this podcast and probably do it better. And um, keep the website up to date better and just think. So if I ever become, you guys can hold me to it, if I ever become a successful enough author that I can make enough money for my books that I don't have to work too well, maybe jobs. Like, Yeah, our podcast could be much better, too, because we'd be. have more time to devote. It's hard when you don't have the real time that you want to devote to something, but you want to get it out. I mean, right. it's just like any kind of other right. art form if you will, but that you want to share it. That's why you're making it. And, and, and so of, you want to get it Right. And out. one of the issues not to, like, be whiny and stuff. I'm not trying to do that. But, you know, I start working generally at about 7 in the morning and with the two jobs. 
And if I really need to get back to my writing, so that it, the only time I'd really be able to write is by getting up at like 4.30 and writing for an hour, 90 minutes, or two hours before I start working. But so by the time I'm done with that stuff, and it's five or six at night, it, I can't even look at a computer yeah, screen to that's edit the, the podcast is part of the problem. Or even write. So anyway, that's okay. our big sob story for today. We peppered with a little um, of how we would like to live our lives. But I had two updates, and I'll just do them very oh. fast. Okay, that's right. You did. We, the did Turpins, we got off track. Right. The Turpins from the House of Horrors episode, which number I can't remember, but they were the ones who imprisoned their right. kids. Okay, it was just about a year ago. Episode episode forty six. It was March twenty fourth. It came yes. out. Episode forty six. If you um haven't don't know who they are haven't listened to it they were both sentenced to 25 years to life for imprisoning their children the other update is he still has the same hairdo the same bowl cut hairdo i don't understand his hair and speaking of hair i don't understand luke teeman from episode seven you know men who kill the women who love them or whatever we call that oh he has horrible hair too he has bad hair too his appeal based on a bunch of stupid bullshit that I won't go into, um, because I've mentioned it in several episodes now, was denied by the state. Good. So those are my two updates. I might, I don't think I have an update. I don't, I don't remember anything. If you do, you can do it next time. Yeah. My story today, I have kind of one source of information, but it is very well documented the the source i used was a book called the constance fisher tragedy oh by bob briggs self-published an american tragedy that shocked a nation i will give him a lot of credit and i thank him very much because he did a shit ton of research for this book he's a historian and historian just a little tip here for everybody okay glamour Unless you live like, Lady. unless you use British English, it's a historian, it okay. not an historian. Okay. That's fine with me. I never know what to say. So anyways. Now you do. He got information from, obviously, from the newspapers. This takes place in Waterville, Maine, mostly, which seems like <laughs> most of our main crimes seem centered on Waterville somehow. I don't well, know why. Most of them, but a lot I don't have anything against Waterville, but I, I don't understand it. Uh, must be something in the water. Ha <laughs> <laughs> He interviewed a bunch of people. He had access to medical records, a lot of them, interviews, police interviews. I mean, this guy. He did his work. Yes. He researched everything. So anytime I'm telling that, like when I'm going into a narrative that sounds like a story, like I'm making something up, it actually, when you read the source material, it's from either what Constance Fisher told either police or her her doctors at the mental hospital spoiler alert (laughs) or her husband said or some other family member said so in the name of this writer again it's bob briggs i got this book on amazon and the reason i found out about this crime which is funny i hadn't heard of it before even though when you hear it you're gonna be like wow i can't believe it that i've never heard about this although it's not one of the crimes that i think stays in the uh, public interest because it's it's sad uh let me back up for a minute the re- the way i found it was i actually was just looking for ideas online and there was this thing that said serial killers of maine so i looked it up this woman was one of them and she's not a serial killer so but i had never heard of her and once i started reading about her i thought it was a it was a pretty sad story once you listen to it you'll know what i'm talking about 
All right. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, yeah. The internet changed everything as far as what you hear about and what you don't. One thing people always need to know is crime isn't new. People killing people isn't new. People being interested in it isn't new. I mean, people have always been interested. True crime is this. It's because of the internet. The internet and podcasts and stuff and TV shows have really. And one funny thing is one reason TV shows have increased it even before is because it's cheaper to make yeah. uh, B-level true crime doc than just to pay actors. Especially when it's like 48 hours at Dateline. Uh, no offense. Started. I love Dateline and Josh Mankiewicz. I follow him on Twitter. Anyways. anyways. Heard, didn't he like one of your tweets? Yes, he liked two of them. Wow. That was very exciting. Wow, that uh, is. Anyway. Maybe he's a fan. I doubt Possibly. it. Let me get to my story. On the afternoon of March 8, 1954, Carl Fisher drove home from his job at Maine Central Railroad in Waterville, Maine. He and his wife, Constance, and three young children lived in a second-story apartment on High Street in Waterville. They'd recently moved into town after living on Snow Pond for about four years. It's actually Meselonsky Lake. Well, it was called Snow Pond. Well... This whole thing. In Oakland, they call it Snow Yes, Pond and they lived in Oakland. Because they don't want it to have the, the Native American name. They were really? It's named after a guy named Snow, a white man oh, who killed I thought the was, Indians. Oh, that's nice. It's not them. because there's snow on it. Oh, I thought it was because it was snowy. That's but anyways, they call it Snow Pond in this book. So, that's all right. Because it was in Oakland. Yeah. Uh, the Fisher children were Richard, who was about a month away from his seventh birthday, Daniel, who was five, and the baby Deborah, who was to turn one year old in exactly one week. It was about four in the afternoon, and Carl was most likely surprised by the silence as he entered the home. With three young children, I'm sure most of his homecomings were chaotic and loud, the boys yelling about Daddy being home, etc. But the apartment was silent and dark. Although it was early spring, late afternoons in Maine are still fairly dark this time of year, and there should have been lights on. He entered the unlocked apartment and walked through, calling for his wife. He found his middle child, five-year-old Daniel, lying still and cold on his bed in the boy's bedroom. He started yelling for Constance, but there was no response. The couple's bedroom door was locked when Carl tried to open it. He kicked it open, but Constance was not in the room. He went to the bathroom where he found his oldest child, Richard, floating face down in a bathtub filled with water, dead. Carl was panicking. He called Dr. Chassie, who was Constance's doctor, and had delivered the youngest baby just about a year before. Constance had been seeing Dr. Chassie for a number of reasons, which we'll get into later. Mm. Dr. Chassie advised Carl to remain calm, that he would be there in minutes. Dr. Chassie contacted his assistant, Virginia, and told her she had to come with him to the apartment. Can I just say, so he finds two of his kids dead, but doesn't call the cops? I don't know why. Okay, I'm just... I don't think he knew what to do. Yeah, I guess. Virginia was Constance Fisher's older sister. Oh. It's not clear if Carl was part of the search of the apartment, but Dr. Chassie and Virginia Marcoux found all the children and determined that three were dead. Dr. Chassie tried to resuscitate Richard, but it was too late. Virginia later told police about Dr. Chassie, quote, He made me come with him and kept telling me that whatever happens, you're not going to break down. But after Dr. Chassie took the baby from her crib and put her in my arms, he just went to pieces. They finally found Constance under the bed in hers and Carl's bedroom, wrapped in an electric blanket. She was semi-conscious after having drunk a bottle of Selsum shampoo. Yeah. This is from the police report written after an interview with Constance. And so I'm quoting now. She drowned the first child, Daniel, a little after 11 a.m. She told Captain Drost that she 
told the child to take a bath. She played with him a while in the water, then hugged him and put him under the water. She had to get her head in the water in order to keep him down. When he was still, she rolled him in a blanket and put him in his bed. Then she killed the baby by the same method. The six-year-old child came home about 3.30 p.m. With this one, she had to hurry as she expected her husband home soon after 3.30. When she had him in the tub, she washed, washed his feet and started the same method. He looked up and said, Mommy, don't do that. She said, It's all right, Richard. You'll be in heaven pretty soon. <laughs> she got quite wet doing this. Then she had to hurry as she expected her husband home at any moment, and she drank a small bottle, less than half a pint, of some kind of shampoo or hair tonic. She then took an electric blanket and pillows and got under the bed. She left the oldest in the bathtub, the baby in the crib, in the master bedroom, and the four-year-old in his room, and she was under the bed of this child. I want to cut in to say that, that I think this is inaccurate. The author says she was under the parents' bed, and I think that's true because she had locked herself in the bedroom, and that's why Carl didn't see Constance or the baby right away. Yeah, that makes he sense. He probably assumed she was somewhere with the baby, and that's why he didn't look for the baby before he called the police. Yeah. And I think he called the police right after he called Dr. Chassie, but Dr. Chassie might have called the police. But the baby, I left that out. The baby was in her crib in the room, yes. and he just didn't see her when yes. he went in. Yeah. Well, he broke the door down and looked and didn't see anyone, okay, so yeah. I think what happened was he assumed she went somewhere she went with, somewhere the, with baby. the baby. Anyway, back to the police report. Her husband came home from work before 4 p.m., and contrary to the newspaper record, he did not find the door locked. He saw the four-year-old boy on the bed and couldn't tell immediately that he was dead. He shouted for his wife and had no answer. He ran to the shed door and found it locked. He ran to the bathroom and found the other boy. Then he rushed to Dr. Chassie and came back with him, and they found the mother under the bed. Again, I'm not sure of the accuracy, although he could have gone to get the doctor or the I don't know if they had a phone or not. I mean, this was 1954. Right. Constance left a suicide note written on a brown paper bag, and here's some of what it said. It was so hard to do, but God told me it was the only way I could save them. They are in heaven, safe forever from evil. I hope you will forgive me. Please forget all about us. Maybe you don't think I love them. I did. Oh, I did. My heart is breaking. I loved you, and I loved them. Taking the lives of your own children is something most of us cannot fathom. In societies, especially harsh towards mothers who do it maybe because women are supposed to be more nurturing mm-hmm. or because we carry the child or as maybe part of it's us. just because society's harsher towards well women that too if we try to understand the factors that led to her breakdown it'll shed some light on why a mother would kill her own children constance fisher was not the first or the last to do it i think most of us remember andrea yates i was thinking of that the mother the- in texas who drowned her five children in the bathtub in 2001 Both women were suffering from mental illness and postpartum issues that were either ignored or not taken very seriously. And that's an oversimplification. So we'll talk about Constance, what caused her or what led to her crime. The two women, their crimes were very similar. Their backgrounds were in some ways similar, that they both were religious. They had different family lives, I think. Constance's husband was very supportive. Andrew Yates' husband was totally oh, different. I, I don't think I'll ever do that one, but mm-hmm. if you don't know who she is, you can look her up. She... So Constance was born in Norwich, Walk, Maine on March 26, 1929. These are all the same towns that were in the Elbert Cochran. I know. I was just thinking about that. Her birth mother was Madeline Sorois of Waterville. There's a lot of French names in this. I'm pronouncing them the main French way. So yep. all you people, if you're in France, I'm sorry. Yeah. If you're Canadian, French-Canadian, I'm sorry. In Maine, there are I'm doing it the main way. Yep. Her birth mother was Madeline Sorois of Waterville. Birth father was Albert McConnell of Parts Unknown. She was listed as illegitimate and made a ward of the state for about a year. 
Her name at that time was Mary Teresa McConnell. In December of 1930, she was adopted by Sylvier Sorois and Rose Sorois, who were most likely related to the birth mother. Sylvier and Rose were in their 60s at the time. They lived part-time on a farm in Bodenham, Maine, about 45 miles south, and part-time at Riverview Farm in Waterville. When she was adopted, Mary Teresa McConnell became Mary Constance Sorois, although I think it was Margaret Constance Sorois. Sometimes she's referred to as Mary Constance, but she was called Peggy, and uh, in other places she's called Margaret Constance, so I don't know. Uh, Rose died in 1932, and Sylviaire moved in with his daughter Ursula and her new husband Warren Marcoux. Ursula was already stepmother to two of Warren's children from a first marriage, and was having babies of her own. Now, remember, Sylvia was in his 60s right. when they adopted her. Ursula later said that she believed Madeline Sorois, Constance's biological mother, was Sylvia's niece by his brother, Eddie, who moved around a lot and had alcohol problems. The families were not in touch, and at the time, adoptions were closed and secretive. The birth parents and adoptive parents were not told anything about each other, although they may have been aware. It's very... Yeah. They may have been aware of the situation um, because it was family. So this is small re- towns. When too. I read about this in the book, it was very confusing. I had to reread it a few times. What happened was Constance's birth mother was probably the people that adopted Constance's niece. It's probably the guy's niece, her birth mother. So she was kind of his grandniece. Right. And he adopted her. But they don't know for sure because the Sylvia and Rose never really told anybody where the baby came from. Warren Marcoux had become a widower. So Warren is the son-in-law. Had become a widower at age 22 when his first wife died shortly after the birth of her second baby. They had a daughter as well. who was about a year old. Warren's dad and Ursula's dad knew each other and decided their two kids would make a great couple. Mm. Warren and Ursula agreed and were married after a brief courtship which was endorsed by all, including the parish priest, who said that the babies needed a mother. Mm-hmm. Sylvia died in 1935, and Ursula officially became her adopted sister's foster mother. Ursula and Warren had seven children, though several died. One was stillborn. Three died of hy- hydrocephalus, which yeah. water on the brain. And five-year-old Natalie died suddenly. It was unclear the cause. Hmm. But they also had five other children together. So Constance was apparently so concerned about the deaths of her siblings, not to mention her adoptive parents, that she spoke to a priest about it. He told her that because they were less than seven years old, that she shouldn't worry that they would go to heaven. Now, I got this from the book, but I'm not sure. The Constance Fisher tragedy book is, is what I'm talking about. This guy read tons of interviews with counselors, doctors, so I'm, I don't think he just pulled this out of his ass, but maybe he did. And I was thinking about limbo, but that's if you're not well, baptized. Well, because Catholics, baptize stillbirth. Which, Catholics, which I assume they were. Yes, they were very Catholic. Are, you know, ba- the babies are baptized pretty quickly. And even I, if they're stillborn, they're baptized. Right. right. And I think the assumption is that if you're that young, I think, not to interpret what the priest was saying, but I will, is that they couldn't have sinned. Yeah. But if they enough. aren't baptized, they go to limbo. Right, and that's why Catholics baptize them so quick. The Marcoux family was staunchly because Catholic. Because you're born with original sin. Yes, we are. Yeah. We're not going into all that. No, we're not. The Marcoux family was staunchly Catholic, of course, members of Sacred Heart Catholic Church in Waterville. The girls were students at Mount Marisi, an all-girls Catholic school. And although Ursula was somewhat of a businesswoman, The girls were trained to be housewives. Um, Most of the young women at that time were trained to be housewives. Constance's age fell right between Virginia, the oldest, and Robert. They they were Ursula's step. People often thought they were triplets. They looked so much alike. Constance was somewhat of a mischief maker and the ringleader among the siblings. She was punished often by Ursula, and one of the reasons she was sent to Mount Marisi was for the discipline a Catholic school education offers. Mm -hmm. Been there, done that. 
She was friendly but a bit introverted and didn't have many close friends. She had lots of interests, including domestic skills like needlework, cooking, and along with animals and nature. She loved to dance and dreamed of being a ballet dancer Aww. at one point. And she was a very faithful Catholic. The Marcuse were a hard-working couple. Warren, a car mechanic, owned a garage and later turned into a truck dealership. Ursula was his bookkeeper, but had a head for business. She started a trucking company during World War II that was later sold to a larger trucking company for at a profit, and it became one of the biggest tru- trucking companies in Maine, according to the book. She was supposedly fluent in three languages, but the book didn't say which. Oh, so English and French, obviously. I don't know what the third was. Profanity. <laughs> they also owned a summer camp on Mesolonsky Lake. Or Snow Pond. Depends on where, where it is. Yep. Constance attended Mount Marisi Academy for four years. The book, The Constance Fisher Tragedy, I'm I'm trying to be like a case file when he uses the book, he always says it, says Constance was switched to public school in 1938 for for fifth grade because Ursula had a disagreement with the Catholic school about the appropriateness of the uniforms, but it doesn't explain what that disagreement was about. Uh. So that was annoying. As soon as she entered fifth grade in the Waterville school system, she was demoted down to fourth grade. Her scholastic record has this note from the school superintendent. In talking with the teacher she had, I find that she was not well adjusted and cried a great deal. On November 8th, she was transferred to the fourth grade. No reason is given for this transfer. Constance didn't stay in public school long, though. In January of 1939, she was sent to the Jackman Convent School as a boarding student. In Jackman? Jackman is a logging town near the Canadian border, about 90 miles northwest of Waterville and 16 miles south of the border. And it probably took forever to get there. I know. As of today, the population is about 860. Ursula was pregnant, and it was decided that Constance would be better off going to boarding school for a year or two. Constance was required to speak French in school and did well in most of her classes. There wasn't much to do at the convent campus, which had the convent itself along with St. Anthony's School. No visitors were allowed except families on holidays. Still, Constance seemed to enjoy being away from her family and living in the dorms. In the spring of 1941, Constance returned to Waterville and Mount Marisi, which was a primary school through high school parish school. Kind of like where Dad went. Yeah. Constance had good grades through high school. She entertained the thought of being a doctor or a psychiatrist, but she knew college would probably be out of the question due to the cost. When she was old enough, her brother Robert got her a job where he worked at the Harris Baking Company. Is that still around? They was No, there, we it's kids. in the center of Waterville, big empty uh, building. It was for a while. It was yeah. when we were kids still. They both worked the 4 a.m. to 8 a.m. shift before school every day. Mm. You don't see kids doing that these no. days. Senior year, she met Carl Merrill Fisher, who was eight or nine years older than Constance. Carl had grown up in Oak. He went off to fight in the war and returned in 1945. He and Constance met sometime that fall, where or how is not known, but they started dating. He proposed marriage around Christmas time, and Constance accepted. They planned to be married shortly after she graduated in June 1946. However, being an engaged woman, she was forbidden to return to Mount Marisi Marisi, for the second half of her senior year. I think they just thought an engaged woman would be giving the other girls ideas. Yeah. She could have transferred to Lawrence High School, the public school. Which is in Fairfield, which is another neighborhood. Yes, we talk about Fairfield later. To get her high school diploma, but she decided to forget about school and work full-time at Harris Baking to save money. A letter accompanied Constance's high school transcript, and here's part of what it said. 
Enclosed is a duplicate of Constance Fisher's high school record. You will notice that her grades are much below her mental ability. Mrs. Fisher was a passionate reader and spent every free moment of her high school days reading. For that reason, she was not considered very sociable and was not a good mixer. She maintained a B average through the grades. Her health was good. She was a little difficult to handle because of her stubborn nature. Yours truly, Mother St. Arsene, OSU principal. Unfortunately, there is no date on this note, so I'm not sure when it was written. And if this principal actually knew Constance. Mm-hmm. Constance and Carl were, Carl were married on Saturday, June 26, 1946, with a small group of family and friends in attendance. They had a religious ceremony at the Sacred Heart Catholic Church, which Carl had recently joined. Constance was already a member. Virginia Marcoux, Constance's older sister, sang Ave Maria. Mm. Carl's dad, Norman Fisher, stood beside his son. Constance wore a pale gray suit with pink accessories. Following the wedding ceremony, there was a breakfast celebration at the Marku home. Then at about noon, Carl and Constance set off in Carl's new Dodge sedan to his family hunting camp in Bennington, Maine, about 90 miles to the east. I had to look it up. After that... They were going to visit the state capital in Augusta, wow. <laughs> which is a great honeymoon spot. What a rip-roaring. Augusta is a bit less than 20 miles south of Waterville. When Constance and Carl first got engaged, Warren and Ursula were a little worried about her marrying so young. They thought their foster daughter was still immature and impulsive, and they cautioned her to wait. But when they realized the couple was not going to hold off on the wedding, they accepted the marriage and even conceded that Carl probably would probably be a stabilizing, calming influence on Constance. Indeed, Carl's personality was the opposite of Constance's. Although he wasn't a huge number of years older than she, the difference between ages 17 and 25 can be pretty profound. Also, he had been in the Air Force and took part in the war. He spent four years in, overseas. But Constance had spent her life in Maine relatively sheltered. Carl had a Purple Heart medal and malaria, which never goes away when you get malaria, from his time overseas. And he probably seemed pretty worldly to Constance. Constance later said, I was married way too young. I needed a father more than a husband. Hmm. After the honeymoon, they moved into an efficiency apartment in Oakland that Norm Fisher had set up for his son and new daughter-in-law. While Carl could have attended college or technical school for free because of the GI Bill, he wasn't able to enroll because he had never graduated from high school. So instead, he got a job as a carpenter and boxcar builder at Central Maine Railroad Yard, which is in Waterville, or Mm -hmm. was. It is. It's Pan Am now, though. The couple wanted to wait until they were a little more financially set to start a family, maybe once they owned their own place. But being Catholic, that wasn't in the cards. (laughs) Constance got pregnant shortly after the wedding and gave birth to Richard on April 2nd, 1947. Daniel was born August 25th, 1948. In 1950, Carl bought a two-room cabin on Snow Pond or Mesolonsky Lake, depending on what town. Carl worked on the cabin after his workday was over and on weekends, getting it winter and ready for the family to live there. That's part of the beautiful Belgrade Lakes region where I live. Where we are right now. While small and rustic, it was theirs, and Constance made it a home. The Fishers liked the privacy of living out of town and liked the rural setting. Constance was a good homemaker and enjoyed sewing and fixing up the house. It was a picturesque setting on the lake, but they had no running water or indoor plumbing. They usually got their drinking and bath water from a spring, but in the winter they had to get it from the lake, chopping the ice to reach the water. Constance hoped someday to have a farm like the ones her adoptive father had, where she and Richard could grow food and have some animals. But right now it was just the small cabin and some house pets. They had a dog, then they had a dog and a cat. 
and we'll talk about them later. Okay. The boys attended kindergarten and school in Oakland and were able to walk to school from the cabin. So they couldn't have been too secluded. I'd have to go and see exactly where it was. I can I can picture where it would have been if they could walk to school. It was well, it could have been a mile away. The family had one car, which was common back then, so Constance was home alone much of the time. Although it's not mentioned specifically, I'm assuming that they had electricity, but I would be surprised if they had a phone. And back then, there was you didn't need electricity to have a phone or vice versa. The phone was powered by the phone line. Nowadays, you would need electricity right. to have a phone. And a lot of people... I mean, even the though phone it was... wasn't a ne- phone wasn't considered a necessity right. back then. Deborah was born on March fifteenth, nineteen fifty-three, and the weeks and months after her birth, Constance became increasingly depressed and fatigued. She had a routine postpartum appointment scheduled with Doctor Chassie, her obstetrician. Doctor Chassie diagnosed Constance with hypochromic anemia. This is a condition in which a person's red blood cells are paler than normal, and usually due to lack of iron, and it's pretty common after giving birth. He advised Constance to eat a high iron diet, and she had to return to his office every week for shots of folic acid and vitamin B12. Eventually, her iron levels returned to normal, and she started to feel a bit better as the spring and summer progressed. In the fall, after weaning Deborah from breastfeeding, Constance started to fall into depression again. She was feeling anxious and on edge. Things bothered her more than usual, Deborah crying, a dog barking, the bills and debts, the upcoming Christmas holiday. She seemed to cry all the time. Sometime around November of 1953, Constance started to hear voices. To Constance, it didn't seem like a voice inside her head, like a subconscious voice. There seemed to be a presence nearby with a man's voice telling her what she should do. The voice was telling her the best thing for her to do would be to commit suicide. As the weeks went on towards Christmas, Constance kept listening to the voice and her thoughts started to evolve. Now she had come to the conclusion that not only should she kill herself, but her whole family. In the beginning of January 1954, while Carl was at work and her two sons were asleep, Constance tried to strangle Deborah with a nylon stocking or a scarf. So Deborah's like a nine months old. old, When Deborah started crying, Constance snapped out of it and called Carl at work frightened. And this is where I wondered if they had a phone, but she could have just run to someone's house and called it. Carl left work and came right home. He took her to see Dr. Chassie, but Constance was embarrassed and ran back to the car before going in. Carl convinced her to see the doctor the following day. It's not clear to me what Carl and Constance told the doctor. Apparently, they felt the situation was serious enough to consult him, but the doctor didn't appear too alarmed. His notes from January 21st, 1954 say, This time, she came to my office with her husband, complaining of being run down, nervous, having a poor appetite, and worrying a great deal about paying her bills and similar household problems. Physical examination revealed no astounding abnormality, either emotionally or physically. She complained of insomnia and a pent-up feeling inside. Mm. I prescribed a mild sedative, phenobarbital to be taken in doses of one teaspoonful after meals and at bedtime. I reassured the patient that she would improve and I was pleased that she was so encouraged. I told her that if any more trouble in this manner developed, we would have to see a specialist for, quote, nervous diseases, to which she agreed. Dr. Chassie advised Carl that the family should move into town. Living as they did was a lot of work for Constance without running water and other amenities. They had recently switched their heating method from oil to coal, which Dr. Chassie speculated may have been releasing some kind of gas that was making Constance ill. Dr. Chassie also felt that living so far from family and friends with no car was not helping Constance's frame of mind. She had no support system and was probably feeling very alone, which certainly couldn't have helped her emotional state. Carl rented the apartment on High Street. 
Constance's family, the Marcuse, lived close by. Ursula and Constance's sisters, Bunny and Virginia, would help out with the children in keeping Constance company. All of them were invested in helping out Constance during this rough time. In one of her interviews with the psychiatrist, Constance told the doctor, Gee, I don't know when it first started. As I look back on it now, I can see my nerves were going for the last couple of years. I didn't know it then. I started out being very irritable with the dog. He got on my nerves so that we had to get rid of him. When we got another dog and cat, we had to get rid of them. When the doctor asked her how they got rid of them, she says her husband shot them. Jesus Christ. Well, it was the 1950s, that's yeah. how people did it. The Marcuse bought the Fishers a washing machine and a television and had a telephone put in the apartment. When Constance had a follow-up appointment with Dr. Chassie in February 4, 1954, she told him she felt much better, was sleeping more soundly. She said she wished she had moved out of the cabin much sooner. She was anemic again, and so he gave her the folic acid and B12 shots and a prescription of iron supplements. She also had a stubborn inner ear infection, so he recommended her to a specialist, Dr. Pratt. Dr. Chassie also noticed that Constance had psoriasis, a skin condition that he thought was making her ear issue worse, which I had the same thing. Mm-hmm. I have it inside my ears and it makes it, yeah. well, it flakes into your, yeah, that's gross. He gave her a prescription for salsam shampoo and warned her to keep it away from the children because some of the chemicals were dangerous if ingested. Ah. He told her to wash her hands thoroughly after using it. But despite what Constance told Dr. Chassie, it became clear that she was still depressed on February 11th when she drank the rest of the bottle of phenobarbital after dinner. I was prescribed phenobarbital when I was in high school and it's a liquid. When Carl went to bed that night he found Constance passed out he called Dr. Sam Fisher which I don't know who he is I'm assuming a family doctor Chassie and was the obstetrician oh that is weird I don't know it doesn't say okay. the book did not say I looked back and forth for all and his exhaustive research it's probably in there somewhere he came over and gave Constance an antidote for the overdose in the morning Carl called Dr. Chassie when Dr. Chassie met with Constance he asked her why she had deliberately overdosed she said that she had been feeling more depressed than usual and thought that taking more medicine would help Dr. Chassie said that's not how it worked Mm -hmm. he told Carl to flush all the drugs in the house down the toilet he referred Constance to a psychiatrist in Bangor Dr. Stebbins Dr. Chassie recommended she go as soon as possible instead of making an appointment with Dr. Stebbins Carl made one with Dr. Paul Jones, a psychiatrist who had a practice in Union, Maine, and also the Mansfield Clinic in Fairfield, Maine, which is, as we said before, is right near them. I'm assuming Carl chose Dr. Jones because he was closer, because Bangor was probably about an um, hour drive. Well, it's an hour with Interstate now. 95. Yeah, so it's a long drive. Before, so. Um, so that's why I think that she drank the Selsum, because all the drugs in the house right. were gone. And the doctor told her it was dangerous to ingest Yes, he it. did. It probably tasted and she does say that later. I don't know if I have it in, in here, but she mentions that several times that she thought it was poison because the doctor said it was poison. She wished it had been poison and she had died. Carl, Constance, and Carl's mother, Alice, all went to the appointment on February 18th. Alice was concerned about the children. Again, I don't know exactly who knew about the baby strangling incident. I doubt that any of the family outside of Carl and Constance knew, but maybe Alice knew. I don't I don't even know how much they told Dr. Chassie. Mm. It's not clear. Yeah. He doesn't sound like he, it seems like if she said I tried to strangle my baby, it would. Possibly, but it sounds, and maybe I'm reading too much into it, but his notes when she came that time, they start out with this time. I know. But it, I, I just feel like that indicates I know. that he's like, oh, here she is yeah. again kind of thing. Dr. Jones assured them that few people who talk about suicide actually follow through. Mm. He didn't feel the children were in danger either. He told Constance, go home and keep on with your work as a wife and mother. (laughs) 
In his notes about the appointment, Dr. Jones wrote his diagnosis was, quote, situational depression brought on by their living condition at Snow Pond and lack of a social life. He had another appointment with Constance at his Fairfield office a week later on February 23rd. His notes read in part, Her mood was decidedly light, and she smiled and laughed frequently and at appropriate times. She said she looked forward to the future and felt that now that they were living in town, she would have more friends and that she would be able to get her husband to, quote, go out more. Mm. She denied any periods of depression and thoughts of suicide, saying, Where do you suppose I got that idea? Probably I was just lonesome being at the camp and not seeing people. Mm-hmm. But later that same evening, when Dr. Jones returned to his office in Union, he got a phone call from Ursula Marcoux. He wrote, On arriving in Union that night, I received a phone call from Mrs. Marcoux, the patient's foster mother. She reported that she had received a note in the mail postmarked 1130 a.m., at which time the patient was at my office. The note gave direction as to where to find papers. The obvious implication was the patient might destroy herself. This report was so completely in variance with her appearance at the interview that I was at a loss to explain it to Mrs. Marcoux. So back then, people used mail a lot more than they do now, and mm-hmm. there were several deliveries a day. And when they postmarked it, they used to put the time. I don't yeah. know if they still do. but I don't think they do. No. Carl, who had been working a second job just to pay medical bills, didn't know what to do with Constance. Her mood swings were out of control. He didn't know what she would do next. Another doctor from the Mansfield Clinic, Dr. Fish, advised she be admitted to the state mental hospital in Augusta, which back then was called Augusta State Hospital. Constance did not want to go. She was worried about the children and who would care for them if she had to go stay there. Ironic, I know. Mm -hmm. We'll find out. Oh, yeah, we already know about it. Yeah, we do, yeah. She was dubious that the mental hospital could help her anyway. Yeah, I don't blame her for that. Carl acquiesced. There was not much he could do if she didn't agree to be admitted. She wasn't sick enough for involuntary commitment. And I'm sure it was easy to be in denial and think she wasn't really that, that she wasn't going to no hurt. no one told anyone she tried to strangle the baby. Uh, yeah, I think that they kind of glossed it. You know, because... Yeah, it's embarrassing yeah. and there's a stigma. I don't think Carl... Carl knew, but I don't think he... Right. Yeah. Constance was hearing voices again also. Mm. She thought at first it was God, but then wondered mm. if God would really be telling her to kill her family. Good mm. <laughs> Good call. She made several appointments to consult with her priest, Father John F. Hollihan, but never kept them. The voice mocked her and called her a coward for not succeeding in killing herself a few weeks before. She thought about killing herself in the car by carbon monoxide, hanging herself, stabbing herself with knitting needles. Yeah. Then again, she began to think a better idea was to kill the whole family, including her husband. The voice told her the nightmare of this life would be over and the family could live a better life in heaven. She was only, she was in her early 20s right. at this time, which is, as we know now, that's when mental illness starts right. to come Especially out. Especially things like schizophrenia yeah. and bipolar. Also, one of the dangers of religion, that people think there's this better world they're going to, and I, I'm i not going to get into a big thing about whether there is or not. But that's what I was trying to explain to mom last night, is like, if you really truly believe, and we'll get into this later, but if you really truly believe that people are going to go to heaven then it kind of has a logic to it, what she did, even though I don't agree with Uh, it. It does, although it's not a big theological thing, but it's a sin to kill. Yes, it is. But she would go to, yes. She'd go to hell. She doesn't care about herself. She's worried about her children. So Mm -hmm. anyway, Constance knew that Warren Marcoux, her father, her foster father, I'm not going to say foster every time. He was basically her father. Yeah, just say her. Kept a gun in the top drawer of his dresser. On the morning of February 17th, she walked over to the Marcoux home on Riverview Road, intent on stealing the gun. She let herself in and loaded 
loaded the 45, which accidentally fired into the mattress. She fired it a second time into the mattress before she left with the gun. That night, she took out the loaded gun and walked through the apartment, trying to psych herself up to do what she had to do. But she didn't hear any voices that night, and she lost her nerve. She brought the gun back the next day. She took it again two days later, but then again returned it without using it. On Ash Wednesday, which was March 3rd, she heard the voice again. Since it was a religious holiday, she figured it was indeed God talking to her. Mm. And also, Ash Wednesday is a holiday that honors those who have died. Wouldn't God have been busy on Ash Wednesday? Yeah, you know, he's got enough time. She felt this was a significant clue about what she was supposed Mm. to do. On the morning of March 8th, Carl got up, made the children breakfast, and turned on the TV. He made coffee for Constance and woke her up before he left for work. And then we know what happened. Mm After the murders were discovered and Constance was revived, Virginia Marcoux, Dr. Chassie, and Captain Drost of the Waterville Police Department took Constance out of the apartment into the Waterville Police Station. The first police to arrive decided, the first police to arrive on the scene, decided they needed assistance and contacted the Kennebec County Sheriff's Department and the Maine State Police for help. Because back then, the local cops took care of murders. Now, we've talked about in some of our, our other episodes that the state police, except for in Portland and Lewiston, cover uh, murders. Portland, Bangor. Oh, sorry. In the suicide note Constance left, she told Carl he should sell her rings in order to pay for hers and the children's funerals. She left instructions on how she wanted all of them to be buried. She told Carl he should move back with his parents. Carl was a basket case. Dr. Chassie gave him a sedative, and Carl was driven to his parents' house in Oakland. On March 9th, there were already headlines about the murder. The Bangor Daily News said, Waterville mother slays three children. Mm. A few days later, the Waterville Evening Sentinel wrote, quote, It was too late to avoid the tragedy she attempted to climax by taking her own life on Monday. Reliable sources said that Mrs. Fisher, fearing certain periodic nervous conditions herself, had discussed the possibility of, of mental disorder with acquaintances and sought counsel of a psychiatrist. She was assured she had nothing to fear, according to reliable sources. The Pittsburgh Post-Gazette wrote, A 24-year-old mother who left a suicide note saying her children are, quote, in heaven, safe forever from evil, quote, end quote, was held today on suspicion of their murders. Kennebec County Attorney Joseph Campbell said Mrs. Carl Fisher had drowned Richard 6, Daniel 5, and Deborah 1 in the bathtub of their home yesterday. Mr. Campbell said the woman apparently attempted to take her own life by drinking a harmless scalp medication, but it just left her dazed. Constance's family, the Marcuse, packed up the apartment and moved Carl's stuff to his parents, where he lived now. He never entered the apartment again. Yeah, I don't blame him. Meanwhile, Constance was in the Waterville City Jail. Prosecutor Joseph Campbell interviewed her, but as he told reporters about the details of the killings, quote, she blacks out on that. All she can say is, God told me to do it. Captain Drose talked to Constance that night, and she told him her only regret was that she hadn't been able to kill herself. She told him she had planned on killing Carl, too, but didn't have a gun. She did, though. Oh, she could have gone and got it. The morning of March 9th, 1954, Constance woke up in her cell crying. She could not eat her breakfast. Alice Simpson, the police matron, was unable to console her. Constance was to be arraigned that day about noon. Carl was brought to her cell to speak to her before her court appearance. Alice Simpson didn't hear what was said, but heard Constance crying and sobbing. Constance's defense attorney was Stanley F. Dubord. He advised her to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. The arraignment started a bit late at about 1.35 p.m. Constance was brought through the underground tunnel that went from the holding cells to the municipal courthouse. See, I'm assuming that, do they have a courthouse in Waterville? Maybe they yeah, did back then. Yeah, but it's a newer one. The police station is new. The judge presiding over the proceedings was Judge Ar- Arthur Craddy. When the clerk read the charge, quote, Constance 
Constance Margaret Fisher did feloniously and willfully. See, this is called a Constance Margaret. Anyways, Constance Margaret Fisher did feloniously and willfully and of her malice and afterthought did kill and murder her three children. Constance closed her eyes and pled not guilty. Carl sat nearby, trembling and crying, covering his face with his hands. When he heard the plea, he covered his mouth and sobbed. Constance held a handkerchief to her face as Captain Drost led her out of the courtroom to a police car, where Alice Simpson and Deputy Sheriff Robert Donovan would drive her to the Augusta State Hospital, where she would be observed and evaluated. The state wanted to find out if she was fit to stand trial. If she did go to trial and was found guilty, she would be sentenced to prison. The woman's prison at that time was in Skowhegan. Which was also near Waterville, kind of. They're all in that area. There's something mm-hmm. wrong with it. If found innocent by reason of insanity, she would spend time at the state mental hospital until she was deemed fit to re enter society. She was not allowed to attend the funeral of her three children, but Carl was joined by his parents and siblings along with the Marcoux family. The children were buried in St. Francis Catholic Cemetery in Waterville. Back at the mental hospital, Constance was under 24 hour suicide watch for 30 days, and she was in, you know, a solitary, whatever they call it at the hospital. After that, she was assigned to a ward in the oldest building. The oldest building is called the Stone Building. Oh, she okay. was Her ward was called Middle Stone. That building was built in like the 1830s. Yeah, it looks like you'd expect a like ancient mental yeah. hospital. Constance was given a battery of interviews and examinations, mental and physical. One of her first interviews was with Dr. P.W. Lightheart, who wrote, This patient was interviewed by the writer the evening of her admission. She was in bed fairly quiet, but showing signs of well-controlled uneasiness. She took the examiner's hand after a while and had the appearance of looking for support. She appeared to be well-reasoned about her name, age, husband, the hospital, and referred that something dreadful had happened. Also during this interview, she said about the children, I feel sorry for them. I do feel bad about it. Don't misunderstand me. I know that it was not wrong. But they were so young. I wish I had my children back. Do you think I can get more children now? Did she say, I know it was not wrong? Yes, she said, I know it was not wrong. When asked if she had the opportunity right then, would she kill herself? She said, no, but I want to be back with my husband, and I would like to have other children if I cannot have these back. What am I to do when I get better? Do you think I can get better? Another evaluation was done by Dr. George Sackheim, who wrote, There is little doubt that this tormented woman deserves our pity and compassion. She seems to be oscillating constantly between realization of the magnitude of her deed and the reflection of defense against the realization of her guilt. It seems to the writer that no useful purpose can be served by punishing her for her crime against society as though she were a mentally normal person. It must be difficult enough for her to live with herself without adding her to her burden the unnecessary reproaches and the blame and censure of her environment. It seems to this examiner that there were several warnings of this woman's approaching mental breakdown in the form of homicidal and suicidal attempts. That these warnings were not heeded is not her fault, but the fault of the ignorant, indifferent, or irresponsible people who knew her at the time. Mrs. Fisher is a woman of superior intelligence who is suffering from the ravages of schizophrenic psychosis. Because of her high intelligence, rich inner resources, the recent onset of her illness, her capacity for insight and strong desire to be helped. It is the opinion of the examiner that this distraught and unfortunate woman may be helped by psychotherapy towards a better adjustment and the acceptance of the tragic fate of her family and herself. Sounds like he has a little bit of a crush. I know. <laughs> Peculiarly enough, she does not seem to realize that the acts she has committed were wrong in themselves. She has tried to destroy herself on several occasions, but changed her mind after each attempt. She claims that she finally thought it would be wrong to destroy herself 
herself and leave the children behind, so she thought of ways and means whereby she and the children could go to heaven together. She now wishes to be helped so she may go home again and live in happiness with her husband. Um, she was a attractive woman, the, the, the writer always says. I, could t- I can't tell by her picture. She looks... Yeah. Or whatever. She looks like a... Well, she looks pretty. I mean, she's just regular. Looking. Attractive is subjective. Dr. Sleeper not only wanted to examine her psyche, but had a lot of specialists perform physical examinations on Constance. She had a spinal tap, among other tests. Ah, jeez. Part of the medical report from these tests said, the possibility of an illness affect to the central nervous system temporarily and periodically occurred to us. The possibility of an infestation with a virus of the encephalitis lethargically type (laughs) cannot be ruled out entirely. Her sore throat, repeated colds, and flu point in that direction. They didn't come up with anything conclusive, though, as a medical reason for her psychosis. Psychologist Dr. William Lajowski Jr. administered an intelligence test. His analysis read, Her IQ, when compared with a percentile ranking of the IQs in the American population, falls within a range from the 98th to the 99th percentile. People falling within this range of intellectual functioning are described as having very superior intelligence. During her first six months, At the Augusta State Hospital, Constance was not treated at all, only evaluated. Because of her impending trial, the purpose of her stay was to determine whether or not she was legally insane. Along with evaluating Constance, Dr. Sleeper interviewed members of her family to find out what they had observed in Constance's behavior. Virginia Marcoux, her sister, said that she never, that Constance never exhibited any sign of mental illness until she weaned Deborah. That's when the depression seemed to start. Norm Fisher said his daughter-in-law was a wonderful, caring mother who clearly loved her children. Carl said that they had a happy marriage and Constance loved being a mother and being pregnant. On March 14th, so this is, you know, when was it? About a week later. Ursula Marcoux and Carl Fisher were interviewed by a social worker, Phyllis Flynn, who wrote in her notes, Mrs. Marcoux is a very talkative individual who expressed a great deal of concern for the patient, stated that it must be God's will that this should have happened, even though she had just attended the funeral of the three children who were killed and was discussing a person whom she had brought up since the age of two. Well, she showed remarkably little emotion. Mr. Fisher seemed to be in a daze whenever he tried to answer a question put to him. Mrs. Mar- who would take over again and give facts as she saw them. Yeah, I, I picture Carl as being kind of a wimpy, passive guy. He was a tall, quiet type of guy. Mm-hmm. Carl said just before her periods, patient would become quite depressed and confused and then d- did not seem to know how to do even ordinary routine chores such as setting the table, sweeping the floor, etc. This confusion would occur approximately three to four days before she started her period. Dr. Sleeper asked a priest from the Oblate Center in Augusta, which is right down the street, right from, down the street from where we grew up. Oh. To meet with Constance, counsel her, possibly befriend her. The Reverend A.J. Lemire was his name. Because of, Con- and he did work at that state hospital. He mm-hmm. was like either a worker there or a volunteer. I think he worked there. Because of Constance devout, er, like a chaplain, devout faith and the religious aspects of her crime, Dr. Sleeper thought that maybe she would be, be more likely to confide in a priest. Dr. Isaac David interviewed Constance on March 25th, 1954, a couple weeks after the crime. Question. I would like to know a little bit about, you are Catholic, aren't you? Answer, yes. How old has a baby to be before the burden of sin is on them? Answer, seven. Question, your oldest was six, so there was still time. Yeah, only a week. Hmm. Or a month, I mean. What was the thought in your mind at the time this happened? Answer, I don't know. I haven't been thinking too much about it. They told me not to. That same day, she had an interview with Dr. Sleeper. Question, We will be as brief as we can, Mrs. Fisher. May I ask this question? 
If you will be kind enough for the purpose of the record to try and remember, we won't bring this up again, just what was the precipitating factor that brought you to do away with your children? Answer. It seemed like I was so mixed up and the world was so mixed up, I would never be able to bring them up right. Question. Was anybody talking to you and telling you what to do? Answer. That's what I was trying to remember. It seemed like I did hear a voice, but most of the time it seemed like a presence. Question. Whose voice was it and whose presence? Answer. I was trying to find out if it was God or the devil. Question. You thought it was God at the time? Answer. Sometimes I did. I don't know if it was God or not. Question. How do you feel about it now? Answer. I've been trying to think that it was God's will and somehow it would all work out for the better. Question. You think you acted in response to God's command? Answer. Yes. Question. Did this voice seem very clear? Answer. Yes, it did. Question. At the time you thought it was God's voice? Answer. Yes. Yes, it seemed to feel as though something was pushing down on me and pushing me towards something. Question. You heard a voice commanding you to kill your children? Yes. Jesus, Dr. Sleeper. Answer. Yes. That's what I was trying to remember. It seemed like I did hear a voice, but most of the time it seemed like a presence. The doctors came to an official diagnosis for Constance once all the testing was done. Schizophrenia, paranoid type. Dr. Sleeper decided the best treatment for her condition was insulin shock therapy, in which the patient is given an overdose of insulin, which would put the patient in a comatose state and cause seizures. Similar to electroshock therapy, it was thought that the shock to the system would realign the brain's systems and help cure the patient. Some patients did have short periods of lucidity, but would relapse. I think that happens with electroshock. And electroshock actually works better for depression, but they used to use it for everything. Constance had 26 insulin treatments starting in August of 1915. 1954, but nothing really changed except that she gained 30 pounds. Mm. Or as the uh. as the author of the book, unfortunately, she gained 30 pounds. Fuck him, so she wasn't attractive anymore. She was slender, yeah. according to somebody. Constance spent most of her... I would be friggin' giantly fat if I were in the mental hospital. Constance, I'm giantly fat now. <laughs> Constance spent most of her time in the middle stone ward, which was an unlocked ward, meaning the patients could roam around the building. She had friends and took part in a lot of activities, and she would periodically petition for release. While Constance was in the hospital, Carl was preparing for her eventual release. He still had some money left from the sale of the Snow Pond Cabin, so he bought some land in nearby Fairfield Center. Constance's attorney had told him buying land and making a home for Constance would look good for the court. And as we know, Fairfield Center is where, 20 years later, Albert Cochran lived. Yes. Small world. That's episode... I can't. One of our recent ones. 60-something. Carl seemed to be in as much denial as Constance about the gravity of her crimes. Dr. Marquette wrote some notes following conversations with Carl and Constance July 8, 1957. She had a lot of doctors. I think they all wanted to get in on it. Yeah, probably. Because it was a notorious case. Yeah. He said that Constance seemed to think she was not morally or legally responsible for her crimes. The doctor told her that, no, that's not how it worked. Yes, she was legally insane, but that didn't mean that she was not, that what she did was not serious. And if the court had decided that she was sane, she probably would be spending the rest of her life in prison. Carl echoed similar sentiments to the doctor. The doctor tried to explain to Carl that not guilty by reason of insanity is not the same as not guilty. 
The doctors and other people involved with Constance would meet before each petition for release and discuss her progress. Each year, they met every year or something, more of them agreed that she should be given a chance on the outside. He has some transcripts in the book about some of the discussions, and that priest is part of the discussion that um, Father Lemire, Meyer, Lemire, 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 which makes me think that they had like a committee, so all the people, the social workers and the doctors and everyone yeah, would weigh in. A similar thing it's like now. a parole board. Finally, on May 6, 1959, she got her wish. Her judge at the hearing was Judge Richard Dubard, her former attorney. Wow. Her new attorney was F. Harold Dubard, the judge's son. <laughs> Testifying at the hearing were Dr. Sleeper, Dr. Marquette, and also one of her, who was also one of her doctors at the hospital, like I said, and her husband, Carl. Constance would also testify. The judge had several options to consider. He could deny her request, period. He could deny her release but allow some trial visits to the outside. He could grant release but order her to have outpatient visits at the hospital to check on her. Or he could grant... You would think that that would be kind of required. Yeah. He could grant release on the condition that she be sterilized, which was not... that. This was 1959. Yeah, I know. This was not uncommon back then, especially for women. In fact, the Hollowell, the Hollowell used to have the girls' reform Stevens, school. Yeah. They used to uh, sterilize a lot of those women. You know, you know what's so weird that you just mentioned that? I got a Facebook message from who I haven't talked to in years the other day. Mo, I have multiple memories from elementary school that have been eating at me of classmates telling stories about their older sisters who had their tubes tied without their consent because they were, quote, bad girls, unquote. I have the belief that maybe forced sterilization may have been common at that time for girls who were considered mm-hmm. either promiscuous or developmental disabilities. Do you know anything about this? Has there been any discussion of this issue in Maine? So yeah. now I can say In the more. book, he mentions it, so okay. he must have found I'll, it from somewhere. I'll, yeah, so I'll... Isn't that, that's, that's, so weird. that's weird that she sent me that like two days ago. I'm like, why is she? Oh, at, at the same time you were writing your script and reading the book. <gasps> Woo! But anyway, go on. Okay. I'm so hungry. I know. Dr. Sleeper, who was the head of the hospital, recommended the court pardon Constance and release her. Judge Dubard agreed and signed an order of discharge. Carl picked Constance up at the hospital the next day. Before leaving the hospital, Constance met with Dr. Sleeper one last time. He told her that he expected her to behave, and if she did show any signs of illness or do anything illegal, she would be returned to the hospital. Constance promised to call Dr. Sleeper if she felt she needed help. They moved to Fairfield in the farm Carl had made for Constance. And also in the book, he says, after an embrace, they left. So it makes Mm -hmm. me wonder if Dr. Sleeper did have a little thing going for her. On October 26, 1959, social worker George Greeley visited the farm. He had visited several times to check things before Constance's release. He had met Carl and been there before. His report read in part, She greeted the writer very warmly, smiled, and invited him into the house. We chatted about patients she knows at ASH. Mr. Fisher had been in the bathroom and now joined us, shook hands with the worker, and asked him about his luck in hunting. As usual, his face was practically expressionless, except for a constant depressed look. This is the way he has always appeared to worker. Well, la-dee-da to you. Poor Carl. Mrs. Maybe he has a resting depressed face. 
<laughs> Mrs. Fisher seemed much more cheerful than when she was in the hospital. Duh. The house appeared very neat and clean, as did the grounds. Mrs. Fisher had no complaints, and there was nothing unusual in her behavior, appearance, or conversation. The only noticeable change was her teeth. All of the, her front teeth appeared to be half decayed. Most people seemed okay with Constance's release from the hospital. Some people expressed concern, you know, in the public, but most left her alone. It made news when she was released because of her crime. Mm-hmm. However, the Augusta State Hospital received one letter from a Dr. Edgar J. Smith, who was an obstetrician. Constance was his patient. She must have gotten pregnant shortly after her release because this was in January of um, 60, I think that he wrote this letter. Dr. Smith had been seeing her without realizing who she was. Mm. When he finally found out, he called the state hospital. His concern was hers and the baby's postpartum health. He was only a baby doctor, but he felt Constance needed psychological monitoring after the birth of her child. Dr. Sleeper wrote back to Dr. Smith saying, not to worry. Though Constance had been actively psychotic Mm -hmm. at the time of her first children's deaths, she was fine now. And though the state hospital was happy to help her if she needed it, she had to seek help voluntarily. He could not force her to come to the hospital for treatment. Dr. Sleeper wrote, Frankly, I do not anticipate any such difficulty. However, we are not infallible, and it is within the realm of possibility, although I consider it highly improbable. If she should develop a postpartum psychosis, it would probably be a reactivation of her old basic schizophrenic reaction pattern, and she should be promptly returned to the hospital on a precept from a superior court justice. The statement of a single doctor would be proficient. Soon after this letter was written, in January 1960, Kathleen Fisher was born, the Fisher's fourth child. Michael John was born in 1962, and Natalie Rose in 1965. Constance, who the family called Peggy, as I said, was a favorite among her nieces and nephews, and the family loved to visit Aunt Peggy's farm in Fairfield. Mm. But Dr. Smith had been keeping a close eye on Constance. He treated her through each of her pregnancies. Shortly after Natalie Rose's birth, he called the Augusta State Hospital and wanted to speak with Dr. Patterson about Constance Fisher. A memo documents the message, but only says that Dr. Smith declined to speak with a social worker. He would only discuss the issue with the doctor. Constance later admitted she was getting periods of depression again after Natalie's birth. But she didn't tell anyone because she was afraid she would be sent back to the hospital and then there would be no one to care for the children. Carl noticed, though, and insisted she go back for a visit. Constance refused, saying she would work through it. But her depression started to worsen, so much so that one day in March of 1966, Carl came home to find Constance in bed with the two older children running around the house. The oldest, Kathy, was six. Michael John was four. Constance had managed to care for baby Natalie, but couldn't get it together to deal with the two older ones. Carl brought Constance to Dr. Kirkpatrick at Seton Hospital in Waterville. Dr. Kirkpatrick prescribed some new medications, but wanted Constance to try them out as a patient in the hospital rather than at home until they could figure out the dosage. Constance would not do it. Carl said it was because she was still nursing and she wanted to be home. The doctor advised Carl to stay with Constance a few days while she adjusted, and he agreed. It was his vacation week anyway. They were gonna. They had a little cabin that he had built on, um, I think, on Snow Pond. Yeah. Oh, I'm getting to that later. Never mind. Yeah. Well, the drugs gave her immediate relief. They were expensive at about fifteen to twenty dollars per week, and then, remember this was 1966. Yeah. And Constance was worried about the cost. In June, Carl came home from work and again found Constance in bed, having taken care of the baby but letting the two older kids run amok. He called Dr. Kirkpatrick, who said Constance needed to be admitted to the hospital. Constance 
actually took the situation seriously that time and agreed to do it. On June 21st, 1966, Constance was admitted to Seton Hospital in Waterville for observation. Which coincidentally is right across the street from Mount Marisi. Interesting. Yeah. She said she had been... De- is Mount Marcy still a school? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. She said she had been depressed and foggy. She had just weaned the baby who was teething. The older children were wearing her out. Carl helped out as usual, taking care of the kids and working on the house. His job was at risk because he had to keep taking time off. The family had planned a vacation in, at a camp Carl had built on Snow Pond. He had bought a little piece of land and huh. built this little cabin. But because of Constance's hospitalization, they had to cancel the trip. June 29th would also be their 20th wedding anniversary, and Carl wanted to do something special for his wife. You know, it's not like that trip. They wouldn't have been that far away. I know, but... like 15 minutes. But you know a lot of people when we were growing up had camps on the lake, and it's just like a different No, but place. what I'm saying is... As far oh. as access to well, them. yeah, but they couldn't. Yeah, they I couldn't go and have the vacation because she was in the hospital. Oh yeah, that's cool. Carl visited daily for Constance's four-day visit. He brought tape recordings of, from the children, and Constance recorded replies to them. Carl cleaned up the house in anticipation of her return. He had bought a washer and dryer and a humidifier, hoping to ease her sinus issues. Oh. On Saturday, June twenty-fifth. Dr. Price Kirkpatrick, his name is Price, Kirkpatrick, discharged Constance. She had seemed to improve greatly during her stay. But some of the staff felt she should be sent back to Augusta State Hospital. A nurse claimed she overheard Constance say she didn't want to go back. She wasn't ready. She was afraid something terrible would happen. I don't know how much credence to give that. They, you know, they're probably gossiping about her. Her family also wondered if a longer stay would be better to get Constance over the hump. But Dr. Kirkpatrick felt the best thing for Constance was to go back to her family and take care of them. Mm-hmm. Reverend Joseph Brandt... Because if you're depressed and can't deal with your kids... The the most the best thing for you is just to be thrown back in. You got to. I mean, you're the you're the mother. You're the wife. Reverend Joseph Brannigan, the parish priest at the Immaculate Heart of Mary Catholic Church in Fairfield, worried about the family. So they had joined this new because they moved to Fairfield. Right. They run a new parish. He was new and didn't know about his parishioners' past. Mm. But he felt they lived too secluded a life down a long road with no telephone. He made weekly visits and had become friendly with Carl. He sensed Carl was worried about something. When Father Grant- Brannigan visited Constance at the hospital on June 21st, he spoke with Dr. Kirkpatrick about Constance. Her appearance and affect concerned him. Dr. Kirkpatrick said it was just postpartum depression, and once Constance was back at home with her family, it would pass. Mm-hmm. Constance's release form reads in part, Mrs. Fisher was admitted for the treatment of a postpartum depression with a hesitant and concerned feeling that there, there might be a psychotic element to this illness, but upon closer observation and with respect to the way she responded to medication, there was no sign of a previous postpartum psychosis in this illness. Mrs. Fisher, who was very depressed and sleepless, distraught, concerned about herself and admission, responded very rapidly to the antidepressant Nardole and the tranquilizing drug Melaril, and the course of a very short hospitalization regained her sense of well-being, her normal sleep pattern, her interest in her surroundings, and at the time of discharge today, 6-25-66, she is smiling, pleasant, and more than eager to be home and take care of the responsibility of her home and children. Final diagnosis, postpartum depressive reaction, condition on discharge markedly improved, prognosis excellent. Carl took three days off work to make sure Constance was settling in okay and acclimating to the new medications. He later said she seemed very much improved and was taking care of the kids in the house just fine. Mm Mm-hmm. On Thursday, June 30th, Carl went back to work. When he got home that day, he first went to check on the chickens to see if there were any eggs. 
He noticed the silence of the house. The kids, the kids hadn't come out to greet him. And Constance usually came out and had a drink cold and ready for him, like uh-huh. lemonade or what something. What a good wife. He went to the front door, but the screen door was latched from the inside. He yelled through the screen, but there was no answer. As he ran around to the back of the house, he looked through the windows, but saw nothing. He went back to the front entrance and ripped the screen door off at the hinges. The first place he went was the bathroom. He found the baby Natalie Rose face down in shallow water dead. Mm-hmm. He didn't look for the other children. He ran out of the house, and the, the fact that he didn't look for the other children struck me as weird. What it struck me is he is he's like he, I've seen but, this yes. movie before. Yes. I'm and he figured the last one was left in the. And yeah. who wants to see your I two know. dead kids I after know. seeing four dead kids? No, yeah. at first I thought, well, wouldn't he check to see? But he probably knew no. They he ran out of the house. Remember, they didn't have a phone. Jumped in his car and drove to neighbor neighbor Harvey Wood's house. Harvey was working in his yard. Harvey told Carl he'd go back to the house with him, but first he called Fairfield's chief of police, Fred Gould. He also called Father Brannigan. Then Carl and Harvey drove back to Carl's house and waited in the driveway. Mm -hmm. Father Brannigan showed up first. He had been hearing confessions when he was paged by the parish secretary. She told him he was needed immediately at the Fisher home. By now, he knew about the past tragedy. Chief Gould came a few minutes later. He and the priest went into the house while Carl and Harvey waited outside. The bathroom was off the kitchen, and they found Natalie's body first. Chief Gould walked down the hall to the living room, where he found four-year-old Michael John on the couch, naked but covered with a blanket. He appeared to also have been drowned. In another bedroom, on a bed, also naked and covered in a blanket, was six-year-old Kathleen. Father Brannigan went to the back door and told Carl, They're all gone. They're all dead. Then he went back inside and gave the children their last rites. Ansley Wilson, a neighbor, saw police cars and ambulances and came over to see if there was anything he could do. As he consoled Carl, Carl said, I just wish she would have left me just one of them. That's Mm. sad. Chief Gould found Constance on her bed in the master bedroom. She was unconscious but still alive. She had tried to stab herself. She had stab wounds and a kitchen knife was lying next. uh, Also a twenty-two caliber pellet gun was next to her. Her prescription bottles were on the nightstand, Nardal, Melaril, and Thorazine, and they were empty. She had written a suicide note on the back of a greeting card. See, she's very frugal when yeah, she writes her suicide yeah, notes. Yeah. The first one was a... Paper bag, yeah. yeah. Dear Carl, I hope you understand. It's the only way I can be sure they would go to heaven. I can't bring them up right. I've already had such a bad influence on them. They could never grow up right. I'm sorry, so terribly sorry it turned out this way. Oh, Carl, if I could only tell you how terrible it is to feel this way. Carl's like, yeah, try being me, bitch. <laughs> By now, more police and the media had shown up. The media. Uh-huh. Newspaper people. Yeah. Carl was given a sedative, and Father Brannigan took him to the Wilson house so Carl's sister Helen could come pick him up. Constance was rushed to Thayer Hospital by ambulance. She had shot herself with a pellet gun, and several pellets were removed from her abdomen. Her stomach was pumped. She was put in a hospital room under guard. Carl was back at his parents' house trying to process this second tragedy. He would later blame himself, wondering how he could have missed the signs. He should have fought Dr. Kirkpatrick harder about her staying in the hospital. But he didn't blame Constance. He told police she never would have done this if she wasn't so sick. At the hospital, Chief Gould, Assistant Attorney General Richard Cohen, and John Benoit from the District Attorney's Office discussed what to do. Captain Droz from the Waterville Police arrived and Kennebec County Sheriff Henderson. The doctor said Constance was in good enough shape to be questioned. 
The Waterville Police Department's summary of the interview reads in part, Mrs. Fisher was laying in bed with her eyes closed. Captain Drost called her by name. Mrs. Constance Fisher, and she replied yes. Captain Drost introduced himself to Mrs. Fisher and then proceeded to inform her. Mm. <laughs> that said proceeded is in here a lot, just to let you know. Because of bad writing. Which <laughs> but, is I know. Introduced himself to Mrs. Fisher and then proceeded to inform her of her rights, that she need not say anything that would involve her in any way in any offense. And if she did say anything that what she did say could be used against her. She replied, I know. Mrs. Fisher is further advised that she should have an attorney now before any questions were asked, and if that she was not able to get one, a lawyer would be provided for her to be present at the hospital with her. During questioning, Mrs. Fisher replied, I don't want one. Mrs. Fisher was again advised that if she was, it's like they're telling her, I don't know, it's just funny, they keep telling her, you don't have to say anything, you don't have to say. Uh Mrs. Fisher was then advised that if she was not feeling well enough, no questions would be asked, and she replied, no, I'm all right. See, they have to say all that to cover their asses. Yeah, I know. She again was asked if she wanted to answer questions, but that she did not have to, and again she replied, I understand. Mrs. Fisher was asked by Captain Drost if she knew him, and she replied, Yes, I do. You talked to me about the first three children, the same thing as now. And she further stated, You were very nice to me then, like you are now. Mrs. Fisher was asked by Captain Drost if she knew what happened to her last three children, and she replied that she did, and that, quote, they are now in heaven. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Fisher was asked what happened to those children, and she replied, I drowned them all. She was asked where, and she replied, in my house. Asked where, and she replied, in my bathtub. She further stated that she filled the tub, but did not change the water between drownings. Mrs. Fisher was asked which child was first, and Mrs. Fisher replied that Michael was first, Kathleen was second, and Natalie was third. Captain Drost asked Mrs. Fisher what time it was today when it happened, and she replied, in the morning that she had told the children they were going to have baths, and when she asked if the children had breakfast, she replied, some. Mrs. Fisher stated that they did not fight or scratch her. She stated she told them it would only hurt for a minute, and that she held each child head underwater for a little while until each was still. Mrs. Fisher was asked if she was sorry about what she had done to the children, and she replied, No, I am not. The children would have had a hard life ahead of them, and now they are in heaven. Mrs. Fisher was asked if she was going to do anything to her husband, and she replied, No, well, I could not figure out a way to do it. Mm, Mrs. Fisher was asked what she planned to do with the gun and knife found in bed, and she replied, I was going to shoot myself, and the gun did not work, and I was going to use the knife, but I fell asleep. Mm -hmm. Mrs. Fisher was asked why she drowned her children and when she first thought about drowning them. Mrs. Fisher stated that she had thought about drowning the children for some time. Asked why, she replied, they were always hollering and shouting, and I could not take care of the baby. Mrs. Fisher was also asked if she received help from anyone during these times and said that she had been to Dr. Kirkpatrick, but that he did not help her. Mrs. Fisher was asked once again if she was sorry that she had killed her children. She replied in a matter-of-fact tone, no, I am not. They would have had a hard life. They're better off now, better off dead. Yeah. Constance was eventually taken to the Kennebec County Jail, where she was held without bail to wait her arraignment. She was arraigned at the Somerset County Courthouse on July 5, 1966, and once again she was brought to the Augusta State Hospital for evaluation. In several interviews at the hospital, Constance told the same story. She had been depressed. The children would be better off. She had a rough childhood. She was costing Carl too much money and nothing was working, and Carl was the only one who tried to help her. The Boston Herald wrote on July 10, 1966, 
Carl Fisher is in seclusion this weekend. His wife Constance is in Augusta State Hospital, and their six children are in graves decorated with wilted geraniums Aww. at St. Francis Cemetery. Law authorities held Mrs. Fisher responsible for the deaths of her six offspring, claiming she drowned three of them 12 years ago and then repeated the same type of triple murder 10 days ago in one of the most bizarre tragedies in New England history. That's a misuse of the word bizarre. Yeah, I know. Father Lemire, the priest who worked at the hospital, said of the second tragedy, quote, I would expect some sign of it showing up for at least quite a few weeks. It should have been evident to anyone with the least notion of what to look for. Dr. Kirkpatrick told the newspapers that Constance was probably negligent in taking her medications, and that's what led to the murders. Mm -hmm. He said, something happened. I just don't know what it was. By our present knowledge, this tragedy just couldn't have happened again if she had taken the drugs properly. Yeah, it's all her fault. In a July 18, 1966 letter provided for an inquest, Dr. Kirkpatrick wrote, quote, I'm enclosing my discharge summary from the Seton Hospital, which reveals that I had become perhaps too quickly optimistic that she had a pure depressive reaction with none of the true psychotic elements of the past, though I had admitted her with a question of a postpartum psychosis. Unfortunately, my prognosis has not been borne out. No shit. In health, Mrs. Fisher is a rather attractive, very pleasant, conscientious woman, very feminine, mm. and very close to her husband. She and her husband appeared exceedingly devoted parents and devoted to each other. There were no schizoid elements in her personality whatsoever when I've observed her in periods of health. Mrs. Fisher was to have seen me approximately eight to ten days after discharge, but the unfortunate course of events negated this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's putting it lately. The superintendent of the Augusta State Hospital at that time was Dr. John Patterson. He said there was no law that mandated periodic checks on a discharged patient, and the court hadn't made it a kish condition of her discharge see that surprises me i know well it's because she got such glowing and dr sleeper was ahead mm -hmm. uh, he was asked if he would have released constance and he had no comment bet he did no family or friends were at constance's second arraignment even carl was absent according to the presiding judge judge roland poolin carl was sedated and in seclusion mm -hmm. <clears throat> Constance had a court-appointed attorney for her arraignment. She sobbed in court July 5, 1966, when Captain Dross testified to her statement of what happened on June 30th. Though she entered no plea, her attorney argued that she be put back in the state hospital, and the judge agreed. Once again, she was put on suicide watch for 30 days. Her second stay at the hospital was different than the first. She didn't give visits from family and friends much anymore. She didn't really have any hopes of going home. On July 8th, Constance wrote Carl a letter apologizing. She said if she could have held off just a day or two, maybe she wouldn't have done it. She told him she still loved him, but wouldn't blame him if he had never wanted to see her again. She hoped he didn't have a nervous breakdown. On January 19th, 1967, Constance was in court to answer the charge of murder against her. Carl was there and was there throughout the court proceedings. Her defense counsel, George Perkins, advised her to plead guilty by reason of insanity. The trial took two days. The jury deliberated 40 minutes before finding Constance not guilty by reason of insanity. Constance didn't do much in her second stint in the hospital. She gained a lot of weight, watched TV, and read. Oh, sounds like my life. I know. She didn't have many friends because she was now notor notorious. Mm-hmm. A memo from August of 1973 mentioned that Carl had zero interest in taking Constance home, even for a weekend visit. I guess I can't blame him for that. I know. He said he would never have sex with her again for fear she might become pregnant again. She was still menstruating at that yeah. time. Well, she only would have been, um, how old, what year was she born? 
29. Yeah, so she only would have been... She would have been 40, yeah, early 40s. Early 40s. And also, she had been... I don't know if I if I have anything about this. I don't think so. Um, I think I cut it out because it was so long. But she didn't confide in anyone. But the second time around, she was hearing the voices again. Oh, jeez. She was... It was the same... It was the same thing. Jeez. And she exactly. didn't tell anyone? No, because she was afraid she was going to be sent back to the hospital. Mm-hmm. Even mm-hmm. though she she promised and I knew when I read that that she had promised Dr. Sleeper when he said if anything happens, get you know, right. call. I knew she wasn't going to because she didn't want to go back. Right. She, and that she probably figured she could resist the voices mm-hmm. or what, who knows. Her younger sister Louise would come visit her occasionally. They would meet in the day room. Louise said the noise was enough to make a sane person crazy. In 1973, Carl told hospital staff he couldn't do it anymore. He couldn't visit Constance. He would not divorce her, but he was never going to bring her home, and he never wanted to see her again. Constance confided in Louise that she was probably going to kill herself someday. Her plan was to drown herself in the Kennebec River. The hospital overlooks the river. It's a, it's a mm-hmm. beautiful setting. In fact, when we moved here around 1973, there's a big, long bridge, and before they put this anti-suicide fence on the bridge, which is... You can see from the yes. hospital, yeah. people, a couple people a year would be jumping off yes, of that thing. Would. And the hospital is right across the river from the state house, and they're both on the hill. And supposedly, they, I don't know if this is true, but they built it within sight of the state house. Yes, in fact, the state house has so a big they balcony. Can, yes, they both had balconies. So that way you can look at it and remember what you're I've read that, yeah. too. And I don't know if that's Why you're an afterthought. Yeah. Yeah. I remember there was, like, one of those UN, model UN things, and some kids from, I think they were from out of state. They thought it was a college campus. And they it looks went, like one. Dro- drove around. Very yeah. pretty. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Hospital notes show that during the summer of 1973, Constance was becoming more and more delusional and more religious. She became obsessed with religious items like rosary beads and holy water. She became more withdrawn. On October 1st, she went to breakfast as usual. Some of the staff noticed she seemed more depressed than normal. One of the doctors gave her something for an anxiety. His notes say she was hallucinating. As we know, people that have been in that hospital, they were drugged up a lot. Yes. The last time anyone saw her was when a nurse woke her from a nap at 2.30 p.m. She did not show up for the evening meal at 5 p.m. After a three-hour search of the buildings and grounds, the hospital reported Constance missing to the state police. The hospital released a statement that she was more of a danger to herself than the public, and police were searching for her. The Kennebec River was dragged, but no body was found. Meanwhile, the public was upset that a patient had escaped. Constance had limited grounds privileges, meaning she could leave the building, but she wasn't allowed to leave the property. And we would have been living in our house right across the river when that So happened. she was supposed to, she would suppose, at first they reported she had grounds privileges, and then they said, no, she was she had to be supervised when she was right. on the But limited. obviously she slipped yeah. out. But well, she, it's not like there's a big fence around the place. No, there isn't. One guy in Fairfield said that she'd come and knocked on his door, and his wife had shoot her away, but that was fucking bullshit yeah yeah fairfield's like 24 miles away from there however on saturday morning october 6 a man and his son were duck hunting in south gardner about seven miles down the river and found the bloated body of constance fisher floating in the reeds she was wearing several strands of rosary beads around her neck and she had the same blue cotton dress she was last seen in Mm -hmm. fun fact constance's body washed up right below the oakland's mansion which is also called called the gardner estate because Gardner's the guy that built it. It looks like a castle on Route 24. Yeah. More, a more recent owner was known to have sex parties there. I can't remember. How come I was never invited? Uh, well, because you had to be rich. 
person. I don't see how they know whether you're rich or not. And you don't have any clothes <laughs> I don't, on. I don't know. Her sister Louise recalled getting the call that her sister's body had been found. When we found out she was dead, it was a consolation to know that she would not have to suffer anymore. It's like a person with cancer who dies. You miss them, but you're glad they're out of their pain. Constance was buried in St. Francis Cemetery near her children. Carl joined them 17 years later. And also, there was all the speculation about how could she have gotten so far down the river. She blah, blah, blah. It's only six um, miles. Yeah, but the, the guy in the book goes way into it. There were rumors that she jumped off the bridge, but people didn't think she did jump off the bridge. They, the um, hospital said, no, she went down to the river and just went into the river. It is a really steep bank, um, so you could just jump in. And it's not very, it's pretty shallow, though. Like, I don't know how you could, but if you let it, yourself it was drown, you then, could. It was then because the, there was still the dam, but in October, the dam would have been open. You can drown in there. You can drown in two inches of water. I know you can, but, but you have to make yourself there. I've been in it, though. You can walk. There are parts of it you can walk. There's sandbars and stuff. Well, like in the summer, maybe. No, but maybe. go take a look. Not, I mean, that was October. Yeah, let's go jump in and see. Yeah, but Anyways, but she, she may or may, I, they don't really know what happened. Well, you, I, I don't see why she wouldn't have floated. He I, had some long explanation about why he didn't think, but where, was, what did he think she did? She obviously killed herself. I mean, they had log herself. runs on the river. The logs floated down the river. A human body can float down the river. I don't know why he thought that. Yeah. He had, I, like I said, the book has some long explanation that yeah. I just didn't. I was okay, like, obviously, yeah. she killed herself. What does, what, yeah. what else would have happened? She and, didn't fall in. She and her deliberately body floated and, down the river. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it took six days to get yeah. there. I don't know. Anyway, so that's her story. Well, that's Did you know about it? or No, I think I had seen something about it online once, but it's not like something people talk about or I know, it's, it's notorious weird. or anything like that. And you think, I mean, it's bad enough that she did it once, but to do this exact, it's probably it's the so kind of thing similar you, probably the kind of thing if you lived around here in the 60s, you would have known. Yeah. But back then, all there were newspapers and TV and radio and stuff didn't live on the way yeah, it does. Yeah, I know it does live on. It's just weird that, that how similar they both come. Well, well, it's too bad because it's another instance of people not fully understanding mental health issues and not understanding red flags. And also the stigma around mental health that would have kept her and her husband from, like, when she first tried to strangle the first kid way back when. But that would, no, it's also, even now, if you're a mother, you're you're going to think twice before, because people are so judgmental about right. everything you do. And, and they're also dismissive. Even if you don't breastfeed, they treat you like yeah, you're a friggin' right. criminal. Yeah. But also, they're dismissive of people's complaints and you know you're written off as oh it's hormones or yeah. whatever instead of people taking things seriously but it's weird to me that somebody could kill her three kids and then when she's let out there's no no mechanism in place to monitor i'm not saying she should have been forbidden from having kids but you you would think that there would be have been some well and the funny thing too is that when she was in the hospital there's a lot of notes from different interviews where she kept saying oh i, I want to have kids again i want to have kids again and sometimes people tried to kind of dissuaded her but most of the time they're just like oh okay i mean i was just like yeah I don't know, and I well, think her husband probably always had that suspicion, but then, like, that Dr. Sleeper just, like, oh, assured them yeah. so there are many... And he's a doctor, so he must know what he's talking about, you know. He ended up with Parkinson's disease and mm-hmm. had to have be hospitalized. And also, there's the, the whole... there There's the whole matter of religion, where I know this is very simplistic, but 
if she didn't have this notion that heaven was going to be this wonderful place where yes. the kids were going to be blah, 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 then maybe she wouldn't have killed them. I know. That's what I feel like. You know, if she thought they were just going to mold and her I in the ground. And I think that when you're, when you're, if you're psychotic and you're, you're delusional, and then, like, we've talked about this before, you know, it's a religious aspect. Sometimes it's something else that they, like, they think they're, the CIA is following them. Yeah. It just depends on what's in your, right. in your, you know, knowledge, knowledge base and so that's what she latched on to and it's hard to explain to someone who's well i don't know i mean i'm not meant i'm not psychotic but it's real to somebody it's real it seems like a reasonable thing to her you know she might not have been schizophrenic she might have had um bipolar and she was just in her manic episodes were psychotic you don't know i mean right but people aren't making these rational decisions about things they really believe this stuff and that's why there's the not guilty by reason of insanity. Which, like I said, doesn't mean you're not guilty. And it would have been nice, though, to have Judge had had some foresight and had periodic visits. Especially when she had kids. But then again, look what's going on now. I mean, how many years later are we? 60 years later? Not bad. Not, not much better. 54? Oh, 66. From her last, yeah. I oh, mean, 50 from, yeah. yeah, the last one. But, like, look at what's going on in the news in Maine now. There's two little girls that the, the trials are going out for the, the people that killed them and right. no one no one saw the red flags there or people did and they were ignored so anyway right, because i think it's just like the red flags with um domestic abuse and stuff people look for these very specific physical but i also think people don't who's... want people are they don't want not to embarrass but they just don't want to cause an issue if they don't want to they don't want, they don't to... want to be embarrassed they don't want to make a complaint about somebody that's not yeah. right and and feel that they wasted someone's time and made a big deal about nothing and yeah what a sad story huh yes it is we'll have to go find their graves yes we are um nearby i yes i went i wasn't able to find them um last time but it was a really cold day and windy so before we'll put pictures up on on a nice day yeah we'll take i was familiar with many uh, where they lived and stuff too yeah i'm familiar with high street and those places and but, well, thank you. You're welcome. That was a very interesting story. Hopefully the leaf blowers didn't mess it up too much. Eh, they're gone now. And you know what we have now? Recommendations. Yes, we do. Okay, my recommendation today is on a show. Oh, do you have the list of? Is a show that's on that I've been watching on YouTube. It's a new show in the UK on the ah oh jeez, I can't remember what network, but it's some crime network, Crime Watch or Crime, and it's called What the Killer Did Next. And I did mention it in my last report about Helen Bailey. There's there's only eight episodes this season, and they haven't all aired. And I've watched the ones I could watch on YouTube, which I think it's four. Oh. And it's hosted by Philip Glenister, who's an actor who was in the um, UK's version of Life on Mars and another show, Outlander, I think. I didn't know who he was, but one of the things I like about the show is that he does the narration. He's very kind of stern, and like he has this furrow and he just, in his brow, and he just seems very angry and concerned. And the camera work is kind of weird, like it'll have the shadowy silhouette of him in the distance and then it'll suddenly show him oh, and stuff. It's funny, but let me get right to the list. Negative Nellies. To the negative Nelly list. Okay, bad reenactments. 
I don't believe, and I should have checked, I don't believe there are any reenactments, but if there are, they're very brief, like not people acting stuff out, but just an image. And I think a lot of it depends on how much video and stuff they had, like the Helen Bailey Ian Stewart one. They had a lot of police body cam stuff. They had a lot of video from her. They had a lot of photos, and there were no reenactments that I can remember. Um, there was another one where a young man killed his father, and they had photos and um, stuff. But there was another one where, spoiler, a woman who was living with her sister killed her sister. Winners and yeah, they didn't that. have a lot of photos. Yeah, <laughs> and another one where a woman who owned um, it was like a bed and breakfast thing was killed, and they only had one photo of her. They didn't have any of her husband, and he wasn't the killer. But I got the feeling almost the family didn't want. So in fact, there were, they showed like uh, them coming out of court and blurred their faces and ah. stuff. But in any case, no bad reenactments. There are no narrative cliches to the point that it's annoying. The premise is they present a crime and then talk about what happened after the crime, what the killer did to lead police to believe this person was the killer. And then they kind of go back and forth. So they'll present something and then kind of go back. And I can talk about that more in repetition. But they also have a psychologist who's who was also a cop Jane Moncton Smith, I want to say. <laughs> and then another psychologist. They're both very, like, earnest. And, and they also usually have one or two journalists on talking about it. And they present it kind of in a straightforward way. But then they go back and start breaking down how their behavior led police to catch them or was indicative. So that's good. Um, racial and gender obtuseness, no there are no, like, assumptions or cliches that I've seen on the four episodes. The one where the woman killed her sister, they were Muslim, I think originally, I want to say from Pakistan, and I'm sorry if I got that wrong. And there were no cliches related to, you know, their religion or the fact that they were immigrants uh, or anything like that. Um, the woman who owned the bed and breakfast was Chinese. Um, her husband was British, and they've lived in China for a long time and come back. They didn't make a big deal. That's done very well. Lack of good visuals. I would get, I was tempted to take away points, but I don't think it's their fault. The Helen Bailey one and the one, I think his name was Daniel Seggy, the guy who killed his father. They have tons of visuals because tons of stuff were available, like the Daniel Seggy one. They have lots of CCTV footage, as they do with the woman who owned the Airbnb. The one where the woman killed her sister, they don't have as much, but I think that's just because as much wasn't available, and they do the best they can mm -hmm. with what they've got. So I'm not going to take points away because when they have the visuals, they use them. Missing pieces? Not really. I mean... I, it's hard to know sometimes if pieces are missing when you have overwhelming questions. It's one thing, but like the Helen Bailey one, you know, I did a report, so I did a lot of other research, and the episode, I think, really covered it fairly well. You know, it's only an hour long or 43 minutes long, so I have to leave stuff out. I'm not taking any points away for that. Inaccuracy or anachronisms? No, um, not that I know of. The... Helen Bailey one, there wasn't anything in there that I later read about and said, oh, they got that wrong on the show. 
storytelling. I really like the storytelling because, again, they present it, but then they go back and they even, like, run film backwards and stuff and go to show things again. And so they, they give us a very straightforward version of what happened, and then they go back and break it down in a, in a way that keeps you watching and also presents it well. Freshness, yes, it's very fresh. All the cases they've done, and granted I don't live in the UK, but are ones I had heard of Helen Bailey, the other ones I hadn't. They tell them in a fresh way. It's not like this cliche story arc, but they're looking at, since they're looking at what the killer did next, they're looking at behavior and stuff with the psychiatrist too that help you understand. So it's a new way, not a new way of looking things, but different than a lot of shows do. Repetition, they do repeat things, but it's for an effect. It's not just, um, I, I know I always bring up 48 hours, <laughs> but you know, 48 hours, they come back from a commercial break and they spend several minutes going yes. over. You almost feel like they haven't, they don't have enough to fill the show. So you're just hearing the same information over and over again for no reason. The show doesn't do that. When you do hear information over again, it's because it's making, it's to make a point that they're making and bring you to further understanding. And beating the drum, no, they they don't. There is, like, the beginning narrative, the little speech thing, it's a little dramatic. But they don't really beat the drum. They let you figure it out. They don't use a lot of unnecessary adjectives. They don't advocate for the death penalty mm-hmm. type of thing, which I don't have over there. Uh, so that's a, that's a 10. Un- wow. Unexpected, I didn't... The fact that it's a 10 doesn't mean, oh, this is the best show I've ever seen in my life, but it's definitely an enjoyable hour that is not annoying. And that I do... not annoying. Well, you know, I think I know. that's why we first came up with our yes. rating system. I, I will say that I find Philip Glenister very compelling. Attractive? Like, is he... He... I... I... I he's not like classically i mean he's not unattractive he is kind of thinning here you have to watch it you obviously him just the way like the way he looks at the camera now that he's an actor i'm like okay yeah i know but he seems very he doesn't he never cracks a smile he isn't like you know some of those british narrators you know they're walking toward the camera and gesticulating and kind of like that nick whatever his name is yeah but he he is very like most of the time he has his hands in his pockets and he stands there sometimes his torso will move but he's looking right at the camera he barely blinks he has this pained (laughs) kind of sometimes he'll like take a breath and almost kind of sigh but like he's just so (laughs) confounded by the stupidity and arrogance of murderers he doesn't say that you just get that impression from his steely gaze (laughs) it's one of the reasons i like but so i give it high marks it's um the helen bailey one i thought was the best one it what it to me was the most interesting one but the other three I've seen so far, and again, I'm watching it on YouTube because whatever channel it's on, you know, we don't get here. And, not, you know, well, and all I have is streaming. On YouTube. I don't think I've seen it on any of the ones I get. Well, the whole, and the whole way I found it is because I was looking to see if there was any documentaries about Helen Bailey because it seemed to me it would be a case that there would be stuff yeah. on. Um, there are little snippets, but this is the one show I found that did her case and that's what introduced me to it so that's a 10 on what the killer did next and the uk you can find it on whatever 
channel it's on, Criminal Investigation Channel or something, in the U.S. or anywhere else in the world, or even in the U.K., look for it on YouTube. Okay, thank you. Well, I'm doing one since since I got that HBO subscription to uh, watch the case against Adnan. Yes, I Which we didn't do, did we? No, we have. I I never watched the final episode because knowing what's happened, I I just couldn't bear to watch it. Um, But anyways, I'm not doing that. I started watching Big Little Lies, oh. and then I ended up binging it. And I had been hesitant to, I wasn't I've been very hesitant in watching it because I read the book. Um, my book group read it a few years ago. And I really liked the book. I like Leanne Moriarty's books. And I liked that one a lot. I just, I don't know what it was. I was just like, eh, I don't know. But I, it's been a while since I read the book. So I, you know, when time has passed, you're not as critical. And it actually did seem to follow the book pretty well. The setting is different because the book takes place in Australia. The show takes place in uh, Monterey, California. But it's the same type of place as Monterey where there's Oceanside and there's rich, there's kind of a small community of, you know, there's rich, wealthy people, wealthy people yeah. stuff like that. So it kind of fit. The acting was very good. Reese Witherspoon. It follows the book pretty pretty much plot-wise and everything. So I'm going to go down the list here. Bad reenactments. I'm going to say, um, even though there's not reenactments, just how they adapted the book. I thought they did a pretty good job. And there are some problems I have, but I'll That'll be in different sections. I'm not even going to bother that much with reenactments because we'll go. Narrative cliches, not really. I don't think there are a lot. There could be in this type of storyline. It's well, about like characters. Yeah, there, it's about um, these women. There's mainly three uh, main characters. The one that's kind of the point of view is the one Reese Witherspoon plays, who's kind of a soccer momish type. Uh, and it's focused on the the parents of kids that are in the book they're kindergarten, but in this show they're first grade. You know from the beginning of the book, as with the show, that somebody gets killed, but you don't know who oh, gets yeah. killed and you don't know who has done it. And the end of the show, you do. And the same with the book. And I'm not going to spoil that because it doesn't Can I really just matter. Ask, <clears throat> this is the second season, right? No, they have a second season starting in June. Oh, okay. So this is based on the book. The second season, I think, is yeah, just going to go ask. on with the story. Okay. I'm going to talk about that later because, like I said, I had some issues. So narrative cliches, there's a wife in the book who's abused. And people don't know about it. And it's kind of, it's a little bit of a kind of cliche, but not, it's not too bad. I didn't find it when I read the book. It didn't bother me. And when I, um, when I watched it, it, I didn't feel like, oh, I've seen this story a million times before. So I'm, Leanne Moriarty is a good writer. I've read some of her other books and she keeps it from being, uh, too trite, uh, when she writes. The, the characters are very well developed and they are in the show too. So, um, racial gender obtuseness. Well, most of the characters are white. Are white. Reese Witherspoon's character, her ex-husband's wife, is a younger woman. She's played by Zoe Kravitz, the daughter of Lenny Kravitz and um, Lisa Bonet. And so she's black. But and there's like one of the uh, I call them the Greek chorus people throughout the show, and that was like this in the book. They have these excerpts from people's witnesses and et cetera, interviews with the police. And there is, there's at least one black guy as one of the people who are witnesses, but there aren't a lot of, of people of color. And I'm not sure if that's because Monterey is a lot of white people or if it's just that's the way it is. It's just a show made by white people. They could have had that. Any one of them could have been black. It wouldn't have made a difference. So I'm going to give that kind of a negative 
half. Yeah, I would. Thanks. Lack of good visuals, no. First of all, the setting is beautiful. That's part of it. The homes were the character of Reese Witherspoon. Her house was beautiful. And also Laura Dern plays this um, type A CEO mom. And her house is some. I mean, I wouldn't want to live there, but it's beautiful. I don't know whose houses they used, but they must have really been on the... And they were right on the water. Mm, it's like, nice. Ugh. But also the, just the filming, I thought, was... Good. The the thing against it, though, I actually I said no at the beginning, but I'm going to take half a point off because I was watching it on my iPad and I had the brightness up pretty high, but a lot of the a lot of the scenes seem dim and hard for me to see, and I and that, that's not the case with every single thing I watch. So I'm going to take off half a point. I might be wrong. Oh, I'll have to watch, especially near the end. They're at a uh, school fundraiser, and I know it's supposed to be kind of dark in there, but it was it was very difficult to see what the hell was going on, and maybe that was part of the storyline. I don't know, but missing pieces. Yes, I'm going to take half a point off for that. Because I read the source material, I read the book, I felt like the Shailene Woodley's storyline in the book, she had she has a little boy, she moves to town, she's not wealthy, but the Reese Witherspoon character befriends her, takes a shine to her, because I think she sees in her a young mother like she was with her first child she has a reese has a teenage daughter um she wants to help this young mother out the son of this character is the result of a rape i don't think they focus enough on her in the book there's more of the rape it's revealed how the man was to her it wasn't just that he raped her it was a kind of a date rape um they met he picked her up he was she he seemed really not she kind of talks about it but it doesn't show like he he doesn't just rape her he humiliates and belittles her makes her feel horrible about herself it wasn't like he just attacked her and raped her it's hard to explain but the book explains it very well and the movie doesn't really it shows her flashing back to waking up and him leaving and stuff like that but i don't think it explains it well enough what a piece of shit he was and so i feel like that that was a missing piece and so I'm going to take half a point off. The inaccuracies and inaccuracies. I don't know enough about that geography to know if there's any. The only thing, yeah, it doesn't seem like there are any inaccuracies enough that it would bother me. I don't know. Storytelling, I'll, I'm not taking anything off. I thought the storytelling was excellent. Book was very well constructed, the storyline. You really wanted to keep reading because you wanted to know who died, who killed the person that died. And I did not... No, until the end, and it wasn't something that surprised me, but it wasn't who I expected. The other thing were the missing pieces. I'll just keep a half a point. The person that ends up being the killer, I believe there was more of an explanation in the book, and I'm holding off on that because it looks like season two might give us more of an explanation of why the person did that because it isn't made clear that I thought was a missing piece. Freshness. Yeah, I think it's pretty fresh. That kind of storyline has been done before with women's women's women yeah. who are friends and something, you know, right. that, or or a group of people who are friends and something happens and blah blah blah. <clears throat> but I feel like the characters were were very well drawn. Very important thing about it too, and I might as well put it in in this part of it is 
the acting of everybody was excellent. I didn't find any performance that was cliche or they were all so good that had they not been as good actors or if the director hadn't been as good, it could have been really like cliche right. because of the storyline. You could have made it cliche. Like, especially like Laura Dern, who's a, such a good actress. Her character could have been a really like a caricature. Yeah. And she brought humanity. When you said, is she the one who's type A? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. She, well, she always does bring kind of a vulnerability. Like, like, I don't think you saw the latest, the, the season of Kimmy Schmidt where she played no. the one that was marrying uh, Richard or whatever, the cult leader, he's in the prison. I mean, she just always, no matter who she plays, she just brings this, just something about her. Reese Witherspoon was real. I've never thought about her one way or the other. In fact, I think the last thing I probably saw her in was that uh, election thing where she was in high school playing that girl that that was running for class president right. or something. With, with Matthew Broderick. Yeah. And um, he hated <laughs> her. He was a teacher that, yeah. that hated her. But she, I mean, I never thought she was a bad actress, but I just never, you know, she was so good in that role because that, that woman was a character that, even when I read the book, her character was kind of, you could either, someone you could like, she's the type of person you could really be annoying. The writer was a good writer and brought likability to her, even though she could be, just everybody, everybody down the line was, the acting was great. So I think think for freshness it really is a testament to the acting too repetition not really they repeat people's flashbacks and stuff but it's it's part right. of the storyline beating the drum no and i think that they could have again especially with the domestic abuse story it wasn't didactic in any way but it, maybe it could have parts of it could have been a little more subtle but um they didn't beat the drum so my final score is eight I highly oh, recommend good. it. I was looking forward to the second season, um, even though obviously the book doesn't have a second season, but I saw the uh, trailer for it and it looks like it'll be good. It looks like it'll shed a little more light, so maybe it'll take from the book and kind of explain a little better why the person who did the crime did it. That was one thing that I wasn't too pleased with at the end. I think if you hadn't read the book, you'd be like, well, what the hell just yeah. happened? So maybe they did it on purpose because they well, I haven't read the book, so maybe season. when I watch it, I know I highly recommend I binged it I didn't think I was like eh, I don't know if I want to watch this and then I was like yeah I'm gonna try that why not mm -hmm. and I really did like it so okay good well thank you you're welcome and I guess that brings our show to an end yes today. our website is crime and stuff online yes dot com we tweet and facebook and instagram Please. a little bit yeah if you're if you're on twitter follow us if you can yeah, tweet at us we're trying to get our mm -hmm. twitter thingies up yeah so please and leave a uh, uh, yeah review yeah. us um if you want to get the, the newsletter you've heard so much about in one of our like tote bags and magnets and stuff you go on patreon there's a button on our website crime and stuff online you can go and we do post extra stuff on our website pictures and stuff usually i haven't had time to bring that up to date yet but stuff relating to the episodes we've talked about it's it's always a little behind because yeah. i just don't have time but I'll bring it up to date sooner or later. I guess that's it. Thank you all. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. I know, but I'm a, we can't I know, stop. I know. I, I know. Because of what happened last night. Yes. Week. But Dr. Kirkpatrick Hang felt... Hang on a minute. It's leaf blowers. Well, I mean, I know it's, I know it's not as bad as the jackhammer... Fucking leaf. Oh, it's these. See, it's this fucking place. Yeah, I know. Oh, Jesus Christ. The people don't even, are never even there. Why do they fucking care about leaf blowing?
Why don't I just put it on pause and we eat and then you, cause they're, they've got another one firing up out there. Okay. Cause, hang on a minute. Look close these again. Fuckers. Well, they're never done. They are, no, they do one over by the, gotta get rid of those leaves. Jesus fucking Christ. I don't know, honestly, what does a leaf blower, it just moves them. It does, and then they pick them up, and oh, then it I sucks guess. them up. Not I go around that fence. You know, the same type of people who have their place leaf blown. You know, I saw a possum last night on my way home. Huh.